You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. So, Neil, today I wanted to start our show by talking about a book that you recently read, which I am fascinated by and have meant to read for a very long time. It's sort of on my list of things that I should do when I can put two hours together. Why Red Doesn't Sound Like a Bell. Is that the right title? Am I getting that right? Yes, that's right. Although I think the subtitle is The Feel of Consciousness. So a little bit of context, understanding the feel of consciousness is the subtitle. It's by uh, J. Kevin O'Regan, who actually may be an emeritus professor, meaning uh, he may have uh, retired. He's based in Paris and um, he, I, I heard him speak. I was involved in a grant with Tony Prescott when I was at the University of Sheffield. So this for me goes back some time. Four years. Tony's a psychologist, and we had a meeting, a little workshop. A lot of the grant was about the notion of autobiographical memories and the sense of self and this sort of things, which isn't sort of the. I, I have this background as an engineer, and you know, I, I didn't really get into machine learning to sort of solve intelligence. But actually, there's some really, really interesting questions, and a lot of them come out of psychologists and cognitive scientists, and. Kevin O'Regan gave a talk at this meeting, which really uh, stuck with me. And I, I bought the book at the time and just hadn't got reading around to reading it fully uh, until relatively recently. So the thing he said is we were talking about, and, and I have to paraphrase him because I'm not sure exactly this is what he meant, but I thought about it a lot and tried to unpick what he meant, was what he was thinking of as our self uh, if I'd get it right, it's um, well. Let's step back. Let's go with where the, the where the book starts because I think that, that that puts it in a bit of context. The book starts with, and I think that, and let's actually move away from the cognitive science because I think it has important uh, implications for the way we're thinking about machine learning and computer vision. So what's going on at the moment is we're being very successful in computer vision, but. What this book is hinting at is I think that the way that we're doing the computer vision is very different from the way our own visual system works, which is interesting in itself. And there's a sort of an odd connection in the book, which to me um, was, I I didn't know about this when I started reading it, but um, Kevin O'Regan talks about when he was 14 years old, which must be sometime in the sort of uh, 60s or, or late 50s, and he was at school. And he had a visit from uh, Donald Mackay, who's actually David Mackay's dad, who was he was someone who was in the Ratio Club, very interested in early intelligence, worked on radar during the Second World War, very interesting person, and did a lot of the sort of uh, the work at this sort of understanding of the psychology, the way the mind works. And and what Donald said, and uh, Kevin in the book says that he's not, the, he'd found later he wasn't the first person to say this, but it seems to have really had an impression on 14-year-old Kevin is that seeing um, is like pushing, I think I can't remember the exact quote, rubber hands out onto the world. What that's mean is what this part of the book is about. uh, Yes, giant hands. So I've got the exact quote. Wakai said that the eye was like a giant hand that samples the outside world. And apparently that originally comes from a psychologist called James Gibson. The point of that, though, is very much at the heart of what he's saying at the beginning of this book is that our vision, our eye, is a very imperfect sensor. If you look at things like its chromatic aberration, so a chromatic aberration on a lens 
is the extent to which it bends the different colored lights. So a high quality camera lens, so the speed of, I guess, the wavelength of lights in the lens, the closer they are, the less they bend separately. So a prism is separating light. So chromatic aberration is trying to sort of stop that separation because that separation is causing artifacts. And one of the, the things that Kevin points about the eye is that um, the chromatic aberration is actually very poor. So the image you're seeing is a spectrum. But you don't notice this, right? You don't see it. You don't understand how poor your eye is. And the analogy that I think that this hand example, the giant hand that samples the outside world, is that if if you put an object in your hand, if I give you something directly in your hand and you just try and hold that thing and identify what it is, you probably won't be able to identify it is. But if you're allowed to move your hand across the object in an active way, then uh, you will be able to identify the object. And Kevin's initial point is that this is what he calls the sensory motor approach to vision, when he's saying, well, the eyes are are much more like that than than we think about. So other sort of flaws he points about in the eye, people know about like the blind spot where the retinal nerve is leaving the eye and there's, there's no sensors there, but also there are blood vessels across the eye causing sort of a spider pattern of where you have no rods and cones, so you can't sense light. Yet you don't have the impression that you're missing large parts of your vision. And, and of course, it's only right in the center of your vision where you have um, very accurate vision. What he's saying is, um, well, so you have that, but then you have this illusion that actually your vision's working really well. So that's sort of the starting point about he, he, he sort of is moving in the book to concepts such as qualia in uh, philosophy, which is, is what is the feel, you know, so why red doesn't sound like a bell? What is the feel of red? What he is, is doing with this notion of the sensory motor approach is trying to sort of understand the senses from that perspective. What O'Regan sort of looks at is the different explanations for how that can come about. And a lot of those explanations are representations within the brain of the outside world. And I should say, I'm not an expert in this area. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it feels like it's taking the ideas that can sometimes seem so complicated and so just just like fraught and like sometimes, you know, the conversation around consciousness so quickly goes into areas that just sometimes feel like actionably ridiculous but thinking about it in this sort of like broken down way where you're thinking about senses as information transfer and the sort of sense of self and any sort of larger interpretation of those things as like ways to parse and understand that information it just makes it so much more accessible that it makes it something that you could actually there's like handholds there that you can use and that sounds so exciting yeah no it's 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 nice and he comes up with lots of sort of little examples that help like uh one of them is he mentions the refrigerator light illusion it, i think this is related to why your vision seems continuous uh to you it's continuous in the way that the fridge light's always on every time you open the fridge the light's on uh so you think it's always on but of course it's off and and we know that actually what's really going on is i mean you don't uh, so eye saccades are a crucial part of this. Your eyes moving very quickly across a surface. You don't actually go, oh, oh my goodness, my eyes are moving really quickly. You, you, you sort of somehow shut off processing, like when the fridge doors close, and then and then the eye stops. And this is what's so interesting about that is, of course, how integrated that implies the sensing is um, with the awareness of cognition. What an integrated system it is, and. 
yeah, I mean, we've had a lot of successes. Well, actually, one of the things I think is fascinating about this is something that Carl Rasmussen is fond of saying, and I'm a great believer in, is that, you know, if we were really close to intelligence solutions, we would have made a lot more progress on motor control. So the control of handling of objects. And it's very obvious to everyone that, that this type of interaction between your sensor mo sensory motor interaction is has to be there for handling an object. But what Kevin's really saying is it's there for these more what we traditionally think of as more passive senses. And and he isn't like there's some fun stuff he talks about the um the nose and sniffing, and that I think apparently there's evidence that humans can direct, get directionality of smell from sniffing, and there's a physical reason why that happens. My my mom is actually uh, looking after my cousin's dog at the moment, and they I don't know they, they, this dog claims to be a fox red Labrador. It actually looks much more like a foxhound to me, and I took it for a walk, and it just nose straight on the ground, head moving rapidly side to side, and you can hear it sort of sniffing. And I was just wondering, what is that like, the perception it has of the ground? And that's very related to what Kevin's saying. It's a different perceptual modality. It can, ha it can find directionality in the scent, both by head movement and by the process of sniffing is giving it further directional information. Now, as humans, we don't use that that that's so much but just it was funny having read the book and then watching this dog doing that and thinking yeah goodness you can see that how it's an active sense uh smell when when a dog's using it to to sort of i don't know what the dog was even looking at uh smelling at <laughs> <laughs> well it's so it's so interesting to see these fundamental ideas sort of played out in this great setting and then be able to look at the world with a new lens a new type of curiosity i think that that's i I, that's where I am always most interested in the conversation around consciousness. Yeah, and I'm surprised actually this book isn't more widely known. And I think it's because there's a couple of things about it. Um, it's it's under an academic press, and so I, I, that they don't necessarily always get the distribution right. Um, the other thing, which um, was actually probably the reason I delayed so long reading it, is I often buy the Kindle version of a book. And sometimes by the uh, hard copy as well. I don't know. That's that's a bit that's a bit much, isn't it? It's quite like the reason I, I like hard copies, but actually note making I prefer on electronic copy. And the Kindle version, I think. Well, I think it only works on. Uh, it doesn't work on the base Kindle because it's it's got a lot of images in it, and I think they somehow didn't convert it for the sort of standard Kindle format. So for some reason, it doesn't actually come up on the regular Kindle. I had to read it. I read it on an iPad. So I, I don't quite understand why it's not. It's close to it. it. It's sort of a summary, I think, of Kevin's work. Well, actually, he lives in French, so France, so I think they would call him Kevin there, although he's originally from, I think, the UK. It's uh, interesting to me that I haven't heard other people talk about it more, and I, I think it's definitely something that... Um, and maybe it's because everyone else knows this already. <laughs> But I somehow uh, I'm not sure, and I that that's true, and I, so I'd, I'd certainly recommend it as a reader. It's probably it's like a little bit more technical than your classic popular book as well. But certainly, if you are in machine learning or you're interested in this area, it's an easy read. There's not a lot of maths in it, and I think it's a very thought provoking book. Nice, excellent. Yeah, one of the first works that I encountered that made me that sort of like opened this thinking about like consciousness as as potentially like a, a serious thing or or a um, actionable thing or something that you could think about 
formally was the the quest for consciousness by Christoph Koch, Koch, my apologies, I, I'm probably murdering his last name. But the thing that I really loved about it is that there was a second edition published, I think a, a couple of years, maybe 10 years after the original book was published, that was, uh, I believe the first author on it is one of Christoph's graduate students. And it was just an update to all of that thinking, the, you know, thinking that showing that this idea had panned out or was less interesting or this was more interesting. But I think that being able to see the conversation evolve and being able to see multiple lenses on this conversation, I think is is so fascinating and where we need to be right now. That sounds like a very interesting. So I guess it's a Koch, I guess, Koch. Well, I think because I think he's he's is he, but he's German American. So Koch, I think. Um, but uh, that's that would be a very interesting because I think he's a neuroscientist, and I think one of the the it's confusing conversation because you're you're sort of reading about it from say psychology, neuroscience, and philosophy, and a lot of the discussions are in philosophy, and I think the in. Kevin's book, I think he does a good job of sort of slicing out things that he doesn't want to talk about and but still having a solid conversation about it. The other author I think who's probably should be read on this is Daniel Dennett. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's one of those things that I, I think you could get totally lost in if you go too far into consciousness. And I think that this this problem, uh, but what I, what I certainly like about Kevin's book is is he's constantly tying it back to things that he believes we can test sort of scientifically or talk about on the base of science. And, and of course, it's certainly not all there, not all resolved, but he has a number of sort of experiments he, he uh, sort of has explored with his students around this space. And, and I, what I also liked about it is even if you're not so interested in perhaps the consciousness side as perhaps, um, you know, I certainly have been historically not that worried about it at all. You don't have to care about it if you're doing machine learning. There's a lot of thought provoking for in terms of what the limitations are in, in the current set of techniques, which we're certainly going to have to revisit. Absolutely. Well, again, the book is Why Red Doesn't Sound Like a Bell, Understanding the Feel of Consciousness by J. Kevin O'Regan. And we will have a link to that and some of the other books that we mentioned and the other authors that we mentioned on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. Neil, this week's listener question on Talking Machines is uh, very straightforward. It's it's just, who do you think is going to win the next touring? Or who should win the next touring? And I assume that we're referring here to the ACM Touring Award, which was just shared by Jeff Hinton, Yashua Bengio, and Jan LeCun, which was very exciting. But there are so many amazing researchers and thinkers in this space that I kind of don't know where to start. So I guess the the basic question is like, who do you think is cool? <laughs> yeah, I guess. Well, I suppose there's there's two parts to the two thoughts I immediately have. One is, um, and actually, I think Mike Osborne tweeted about this recently, uh, and I can't remember what exactly he put in his tweet, but it was something along the lines of the myth that um, science is the product of the lone genius is I can't remember, but I mean, it's not only is it bad in the base case, misleading, but also detrimental to uh, people's mental health, which I thought was, uh, I've always felt very strongly that, that there's this, um, 
this myth of the lone scientist is is very dangerous and i think the nobel prize is the worst thing at, at enhancing it and particularly since it restricts like you know the the number and, and like the, the the tragedy of things like rosalind franklin not being her work not being acknowledged so these prizes almost become as big a story around those that weren't acknowledged than those that were um the counter argument is they bring a lot of positive attention to to really great pieces of work and you know i love uh joshua yan and and you know, well, and jeff in particular is a very very inspirational individual and i think all three of them would, would readily admit that that it's it's also an award for the the wider community which i think we should rightly be proud of so with those sort of caveats placed then then i think that just becomes a conversation about interesting and influential researchers well, I mean, I always felt the community was a sort of binary star system revolving around Mike Jordan and Jeff Hinton. That that was my sort of early model of the community. Different personalities, different capabilities, different approaches to science. Um, and to an extent, they, they, those binary stars have drifted apart more. Of late, I think Mike started in the cognitive sciences and psychology related to you know the conversation we were just having, and has moved much more towards sort of very rigorous statistical models, probabilistic models, mathematical formulations for systems, you know things like Bayesian non-parametrics. But I mean, it's him as and his students, just a large range of ideas that have have come from Mike and his lab. So, so Mike would strike me immediately. I don't know what they, because these awards are normally for like an achievement, aren't they? So, yeah, they're usually around an area. But, but I love, I love your thinking, your take on it of like who is an inspirational individual, and one of the people who I have always just. I mean, in, in looking at the field from sort of my position as not a practitioner, but someone who's just like hovering around the outside all the time, Jennifer Chase always strikes me as like this just amazing human being and she's she's moving to uc berkeley now right from microsoft that is such an exciting move i i, I mean it's it's when you talk about inspirational people i'm not even that familiar with jennifer's technical work i know that she's coming from a physical physics background i've certainly had a very interesting conversation around the statistical physics of neural networks um, and she has spoken about that on talking machines and she's coming from a theoretical computer science perspective but but I do think when you, you know, beyond all those achievements, wow. I mean, just in terms of what she did in terms of building the MSR lab up in New England and, and so early on, before anyone was talking about it, she brought social scientists in, she brought economists in. She, um, you know, Kate Crawford is in, in New York, which is part of that lab. Hannah Wallach, computational social science. Mary Gray, the uh, who's a pure, more of a pure social scientist, but looking at things from a computational point of view, she was so ahead of the game on on that. And I, I would have to say, I mean, it's a great coup for Berkeley to to have her because I, I've always sort of thought that Jennifer's lab uh, would have been one of the most interesting places to to work in um, Cambridge, New England. And a lot of it is around that vision of what was going to be important and who was worth bringing in. And of course, Christian Borgs is, is moving as well. Yeah, definitely. And yes, so that's interesting, isn't it? Because I know less 
well, even even though I'm much more familiar with Mike's technical work because I've sort of followed it for a long time, I see these people as inspirational leaders who have inspired many, many people, not just with the work itself, but in the way they conduct themselves, the way they carry out their work and uh, the way they inspire those around them. Absolutely. Neil, it sounds like we need to start the Talking Machines Award for visionary in the field of thinking about things real good. What do you think? Yeah, the Talking Machines Award for being a generally good sort and (laughs) amazingly inspirational person. That's a perfect title. The Talking Machines Award for being generally a good sort. Yes. So I would, if we had one of those, I I would be pushing for Jennifer to be the uh, first awardee. And it's quite likely, and and, and I know her technical depth is that she she could also be an excellent candidate on on the sort of more, I think for the Turing, you have to say, well, this is the technical contributions. And, And of course, she's there as well. And actually, she's not only is she there, but she's someone who's, you know, has moved across fields and, and done it in multiple different places. Absolutely. Yeah. For the good sort of word, you have to have the technical chops, but then you also must work to expand the community. Yeah. And then, okay, so then the next person who I think sort of combines both of those characteristics would immediately spring to mind is, um, would probably be Bernard Chilcott for me. And I have to be careful because I, I know him personally very well and he's a very good friend. But um, when I look at his I think one of the things he was a massive inspiration for me early on in the sort of um I have this sort of funny little story which was that uh, I actually created Bernard's Wikipedia page because I was reading about support vector machines on Wikipedia like 13 years ago and like they had a Wikipedia page for Alex Moller and you know Vapnik was there and these other people were there and I thought oh they haven't mentioned Bernard and it was about the SVM so I created a small stub of a page for him on Wikipedia. I I didn't know him that well at the time, but I wrote something a little bit about him and it was deleted by someone who said that um, Bernard wasn't really responsible for inventing the support vector machine. He was just someone who came along later and stole all the glory. Something like that. I I don't know. You can see all this on Wikipedia. I can't remember exactly what they said. And I was sort of shocked. So the page was deleted or or removed off the SVM site or it wasn't deleted or whatever. And it was, I, you know, it's back. It was put back up. But it made me realize that people who were writing about these things were seeking this narrative where they wanted to have a moment of invention. And if certainly if you look at the people who wrote the original papers, you've got Vapnik, you've got um, Bernard Boza, you've got Isabel Guion, you've got Karina Cortez. They are all there um, making this thing a practical algorithm. But then if you look at what sort of Bernard did, and they're all amazing people and, and we could be having conversations about them as well, but... Bernard was a particular inspiration for me because what he was doing actively at Europe's back in sort of the year 2000, 2001 was bringing workshops together to talk about this stuff, producing these edited volumes, forming a community around it, uh, which the kernel methods people did really well. And uh, as Gaussian process people, we failed to do as well. And, And it was a very important part of the evolution. He also made major contributions technically. And I think he was one of the first people to um, kernelize other algorithms, sort of kernel PCA. And he was the first to sort of show that support vector machines outperforming Lynette as it was back then, you know, the, the convolutional neural networks on this 
uh, important benchmark, the MNIST data, which is still important today. Of course, now, now we have confidence outperforming SVMs, but right at that time, these mathematically elegant algorithms were, were able to outperform the much more complex mathematically neural networks. And Bernard was, was a massive influence on that. And of course, he's, he's done very much the same with causality, which is a massive passion for him now. And he's been an inspiration to many students uh, and the breadth of his understanding. I, I, I would say... Yeah, I mean, Bernard Shulkoff would be another one I would think about. Absolutely. Yeah. But now, Neil, we can't let it get political. We can't just nominate our no, friends. That's right. You know, we have to, we have to like, you know, we can't, we can't this let, let this become the Nobels. <laughs> Come on, Neil. Well, if you've got a nominee for the Very Good Sort Award or even a question, which is a real thing on Talking Machines for us, you can email us at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com or tweet at us at TLKNGMCHNS. This week's guest on Talking Machines is Tewodros Abebe, and he's from Adidas Ababa University. And Neil got a chance to sit down with him at Data Science Africa, and he asked him the first question that we ask all of our guests. How did you get where you are? I'm from Walaita, here in Ethiopia. It is the southern part of Ethiopia. I grew up there. Then after completing my secondary school, I joined a college for a teaching college for learning chemistry and mathematics and physics minor. Then uh, I taught for two years chemistry in secondary school. Then I joined Addis Ababa University to study computer science for bachelor program. Uh, I started uh, the area of CS during that time. Then uh, I completed my first degree here in Addis Ababa University in computer science. And how long ago was that now? It's like 12 years ago. Yeah, 12, yeah. Yeah, exactly, 12 so, years ago. No, Walaita is how far away from Addis? Walaita is 340 kilometers far away from Addis. So you tend to fly there or drive? Drive. Yeah. Yeah, usually through buses or... It's about 10 drive. hours drive or something? Uh, somewhere like six hours drive. Six hours. Okay, it's so a good road. Yeah. Um, and you did your undergraduate in computer science. Did exactly. you then go into lecturing? So you're doing a PhD now? What no, you... after my first degree, I taught for two years before attending my master's degree. Here in Addis, I did my master's in information science. Uh, then I go back to university where I taught two years in Debrabraham. Then I began my PhD uh, six years ago. I attended Addis Ababa University in language technology track. Nice. There is IT PhD program with different tracks. So Addis has this big research track in language technology, right? Exactly. Uh, and that's, is that driven by Aramaic as being a particular language that's quite widely spoken with all these relationships? with Semitic languages? Or how does that come about, this sort of big focus on language in, here in Addis Ababa? One of the professors who joined Addis Ababa University during the inception of the program from IU, Indiana University, he is now my advisor. He is from the area of natural language processing, NLP. Yeah. So probably he influenced, uh, he, he did research in morphological analyzer for the Semitic language as well uh, for some of the languages here in Ethiopia. Then I think he's a guy who lead the university officials to, to have one, one of the track. Then uh, during my master's, of course, uh, 
when I was trying to come up with a research area, uh, I just saw lots of literatures which are done for many of our other developed country languages. Yeah. While there is nothing done for my native language, Walaita. That's where I was so your, motivated. Your native language is Oraita? Walaita. Walaita. Walaita, yeah. And is that uh, part of the Semitic family as no, well? No, it's, it's part of Omotic family. Right. It's Omotic language. So, uh, it's the widely spoken Omotic language yeah. in the southern part of Ethiopia. Yeah. And I didn't see any paper, any research, any <laughs> attempt done for all the Omotic languages. None. There are around 30 Omotic languages in Ethiopia. While during that time, there is no research attempt for any NLP-related tasks. So uh, you're the founder of the research field of uh, natural language <laughs> processing for amniotic languages. Yeah, exactly like that. <laughs> Probably for me, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so, so what directions? So, okay, one nice thing about being the founder of the field is you, you get to choose what to do first. So what did you choose uh, to do? <laughs> and that may be a problem as well. There's a lot yeah, to choose exactly. from. So which directions uh, did you choose? What I did was like, I, I just try to see some of researches conducted for Ethiopian language. I got speech-related researches for Amharic and Afanoromo, the, the, the widely spoken Ethiopian language. I just go following the research workers which are conducted for Amharic and Oromo. Then I first developed speech synthesizer for Walaita. Ah, speech synthesizer first. Exactly. Then, what's the script? Is the script uh, of the language what script? It's Latin. You use a Latin script. Yeah, Latin script. Okay. Uh, uh, other than Amharic, most of Ethiopian language use Latin script. Ah, okay. Yeah. So it's it's, it's funny in Addis because you see Amharic script everywhere, and it's a beautiful script. Um, but most in the rest of the country using Latin script. Yeah, uh, if you take like Afano Romo, which is spoken by more than forty million. People, they are using Latin script and all Omotic languages also using Latin script. That sounds like a great place to start because actually you, you can build on um, speech generation technologies from other languages. Were you able to use one out of the box or did it take a lot of modification to shift oh, the language? Uh, yeah, there, there are a lot of modification. And yeah. It was a bit tough. And one of, one, yeah, after, 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 Doing that while I was at joining the PhD program, my advisor, uh, Mike Gasser from Indiana University, IU came and told me to begin a research from low-level NLP work done going to speech-related tasks. So yeah. I just go back to text-related researches like morphology. Now I developed morphological analyzer for Olaita, which is freely available now. Yeah, uh, That's also the first attempt to... To, 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 for omotic language, of course. <laughs> Do you have a particular application in mind when you're doing this, or is it because you're the first there, it's just, well, we're going to need these things as foundational for further applications? Uh, I have a plan. One of the important NLP applications, I, I really love is machine translation. Yeah. So for machine translation, there are lots of tools which are really important to have. First, like availability of digital corpus, Species, sorry, this morphological analyzer, parser, uh, part of speech tagger and related things. That's why I just start developing morphological analyzer and knowing all the features of a lighter language first, then developing a speech a bit higher level NLP app. 
Is there a lot of linguistic research on Alaita languages as well in terms of classical linguistics or uh, is that missing as well? Oh, that's also missing as well. That's one of the problem of probably Ethiopian language. Uh, one of the research, uh, even the existing research were conducted by not Ethiopian, Ethiopians. Yeah, yeah. Like the, <laughs> the, the Alaita language research, yeah. uh, where I can now access is done by one of the Japanese PhD students. Uh -huh. and I'm, I'm, I'm just accessing that material and... I mean, no disrespect to the Japanese PhD student, but one suspects that you find a lot of errors in their understanding of the way the language is used if you're a non-native speaker, right? I, I'm a native speaker. Yeah, but uh, the yeah. Japanese student, yeah, it, it, it's very, very hard to uh, work on a... Uh, I, I really thank him since I'm just using his resources till now. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. If uh, well, if there there are Ethiopian linguists where uh, where where I can personally meet, then it, it really helps us a lot. That's also one of the lack. We 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 lack experts, linguistic experts as well, digital data. And is there a, in the language is there a literature as well as is it more of a spoken language or is there also a sort of literature that you can draw a resource on? Because one of the interesting things about say speech recognition is that most of the corpus used to be people reading the Wall Street Journal or something like that. Mm -hmm. And of course, reading the Wall Street Journal is nothing like the way you speak in the real life. You know, um, and uh, that led to a lot of bias in terms of what the recognizers could do, which is broadly fixed now with data availability. But do you have that type of corpus, the equivalent of the Wall Street Journal text or uh, to rely upon? Or are you mainly looking at... Um, sort of more informal sources uh, for the tech? This is big, one of the really big challenge for, to, to find any texts. Uh, yeah, Walaita has been in the written format since 1960s, but it's only for biblical or this spiritual related issues. So we can find any digital texts uh, online only for Bible, yeah. And some of the religious organizations, they are really posting Walaita scripts, but you cannot find other domains. Like if I just go to any other domain like tourism, I cannot find any text related with tourism or many of the domains. So those texts, the, the religious texts, um, are they of the form, were they translated recently or are they very old translations? Both. Yeah. I can find both recent translations as well as old translations. Uh, both are done on the Latin So you, you presumably end up with uh, a corporate... So, so in English, obviously, our biblical text is a very different way of speaking English. I mean, number one, it was translated in the 17th century or something. And actually, there's a whole form of biblical language that you can speak in a biblical way yeah. to sound a bit more like the Bible, mm -hmm. make yourself sound fancy. Um, do you have that challenge as well? Is there a difference, a strong difference between the way religious texts are being written and the way people are speaking uh, Alaita on the street, or is it? Uh, currently, for the last uh, couple of years, uh, my research focuses on morphology and Alaita texts, not speech, of course. Yeah. The speech issues stopped while I completed my master's degree. Yeah, yeah. Then during my PhD, yeah, one of the challenges now is still text. I only find texts which are written for academic purpose, like elementary education, high school education, yeah. and only biblical. For others, now I have a project where I'm conducting in Walaita uh, on the corpus collection of Walaita texts and other romotic language texts. Uh, yeah, there is a challenge if the domain is only in 
Bible and only in education. You cannot find other kind of other type of words which are usually used in other domains. We were speaking to Charles Saidu earlier about the dynamics of uh, pigeon in Nigeria, pigeon English, and how rapidly it moves, and how the pigeon, how he, you struggle to talk across generations because younger people speak a different pigeon from older people, and it's moving all the time. Presumably, Walaita isn't so dynamic as that, that there's some continuity, or do you also find large changes in the way people are speaking the language across generations as well as these other problems in lack of speech? Uh, one of the challenges on those texts which are written currently, uh, there, there is an influence of other big languages on those smaller languages. Like Amharic has lots of influence on Walaita, Many of the people communicate uh, using Amharic uh, words while they are even speaking Walaita. Uh, That's a common problem, but yeah. uh, for morphology related issue, uh, the only problem is the uh, finding balanced corpus from different domains. Yeah. Unless we have a good balanced corpus, it's a bit difficult to go with any machine learning related issues on NLP researches. Your research is taking you in this direction. You're still working on the morphology uh, for your PhD at the moment. But one of the other things you've become involved with, which is something quite exciting that's happening in the region, is the ICLR conference is coming to Addis next year. And you've been heavily involved with the organization of that. So I'm surprised you've had any time to look at uh, Walaita or, or maybe you haven't. Tell us a little bit about how that's going and what some of the challenges are. And First of all, how many? what's the estimated number of people for ICLR 2020 that you're looking to accommodate? There is no formal way of communication with the organization. Rather, informally, Terminate is one of the part of the organization, probably, in organizing ICLR in Addis. Whenever they requested me, yeah. Yeah, whenever they requested me to check some of the resources in Addis, and whenever once also there are two guys who came from US to visit whether Ethiopia is suitable enough for having this kind of GNP conference. Yeah. And yeah, I showed them and I really contributed, collaborated with them to to look for hall, to look for different Thing they just require to, 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 to so do we know do we know how many people were at ICLR this year how many numbers are they expecting to uh, host? Uh, pro, uh, until 8,000 8, yeah 5,000 to 8,000 wow. they were looking for a hold which holds more than 5,000 so and how many facilities in Addis are there that hold more than 5,000 people there is one of a big hall millennium hall in Addis which is able to hold more than 8,000 people right and there are lots of hotels in nearby ha- having the capacity of more than 1,000 people uh, to have parallel sessions. Almost it is something like within a compound, the same compound with Millennium Hall. Other than that, there are lots of NLP researchers, ML researchers here in Ethiopia as well, diasporas. It's a place where a birthplace of Sofia, as you know, yeah. as well, Lucy. Yeah. So... We are, we are really happy to because it's a big event. So it's a, I mean, it's a, you've got the diaspora. There's a lot of NLP research going on, so it's a um, great place to have it, and it'd be the first major machine learning conference uh, on the African continent. 
exactly uh, that's that's uh, why we're happy <laughs> yeah yeah i think it's very exciting yeah, yeah um, it's exciting so uh, um we're looking forward to that but um when you i sometimes think about it and i actually have been asked and it's a difficult question to answer what will be the biggest benefit of bringing iclr to addis what's your opinion on it okay uh, sure that's a good question <laughs> uh, there are more than 80 phd students only here in ethiopia in addis more than 80 whenever we try to get visa for to attending big conferences in many of the western countries it's really a, a tough even for almost all africans yeah so uh, to come to ethiopia for any africans it's free yeah. They, are, they are not even requested or asked to have some complex processes like any other uh, uh, Western countries. So that'll change things for the ATPHC students here. And I, my immediate analogy was in my head, we have this expression, bringing the mountain to Mohammed rather than Mohammed going <laughs> to the mountain. Um, yeah. So there's that effect, which is great. But um, I guess five to 8,000 sort of top machine learning researchers in the continent, um, what can we show the community? Because the whole community is going to be in your back garden. What, what do you think uh, Addis can show the community that they can learn from coming here rather than if they were in New Orleans or wherever else? Exactly. Uh, there are lots of benefits. Uh, if you just take me, uh, when I just traveled for the first time to uh, Poland to attend one of the summer school, I have learned a lot of things. Like yeah. I heard for the first time machine learning related issue while I attended one of the big conferences in the U.S. And then I just contributed a lot in, for my language and yeah. uh, other as, as, as issues. Still, I'm teaching also machine learning related courses for my students. Yeah, so yeah. whenever we get such kind of uh, big opportunities to attend and to learn, uh, it's a lot for, for, for us as an African. And the other is, yeah, any, anybody who come here has lots of things to see from Africa, to learn from Africa. And yeah. Uh, yeah, lots of solutions are really coming from Africa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, that's right. And, and I, well, I'm, I'm very curious. Well, I'm fascinated uh, about how, how it's all going to pan out. But one thing I kind of can almost guarantee is that some things will go wrong because that's the way that things happen. Infrastructure fails, you know, lighting can fail and things like that. That's interesting when it happens in a big conference. So I guess one thing I really hope is if it, I mean, I expect it to happen, but if when it happens, people gain an understanding and a patience with it, that these, this is the way it is and that you have to react to it and live with it and move forward with it. I really hope that people learn the positive side of that because I certainly do. I mean, like, I don't know, I gave my talk yesterday at DSA. We were having lunch and I realized my talk was supposed to start 20 minutes ago. <laughs> no one minded <laughs> that's the beautiful thing but it does of course require some patience on behalf of everyone yeah. that this stupid uh, professor from the UK is half an hour late for the talk and I'm really interested to see what happens when that scales up I think it's very yeah. exciting uh, you know DSA is organized in one of the place where yeah Lots of power interaction happened in in the university within within the university compound. But for for the conference ICLR, center, for the conference, we we have lots of yeah we yeah. we are just prepared to 
have. So that worries well, me a little bit as well because I can also see. So I'm in a lovely hotel, the Radisson yeah. Blue here. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said to um, Shira, I wanted to complain about the quality of the hotel. And he said, what do you mean? It seems lovely. I said, yeah, it feels too good. I, I, when I'm in the hotel right now, I could be anywhere in the world. You know, it's, it, it's, you, you walk out and you know where you are. Yeah. But when you're in your hotel room, I mean, the internet was good. I haven't switched on the TV, but there's a coffee machine. The, the electricity works. And that's great that Addis has those facilities. Yeah. But there was nothing really in my room that told me like, you know, I think when we were in Abuja, um, I walked outside my door and there was like a cockroach half the size of my foot. You know, one that sort of felt like it had to knock on the door to gain entry to my room. <laughs> it had like a card to gain entry. You know, things like that, that to me is like, that's, that's the lived experience. Yeah. So I'm sort of, that's the other thing is things will maybe go extremely smoothly, but people may not get a sense of, of what it's like when you don't have all those facilities all the time and the internet's going down, the power's going down. I don't know, it's going to be fascinating. Oh, uh, so, uh, hope, yeah, of course the time, the time also where DSA conducted is, uh, nationally there is uh, some problem on the power-related issue due to the, the, the season. Yeah. And hope this, this will not happen during the ICLR. Uh, and we are also collaborated with big giant organizations here in Addis, uh, like Ethio Telecom, to, to have a better internet connection during Fantastic. that time, and power too. Yeah. Uh, we already deal with uh, so government organizations. Organi- you're changing the infrastructure of the whole <laughs> yeah. city to take the conference on. <laughs> exactly. We're, There's we're, nothing we're. like a computer science conference <laughs> to stretch the bandwidth infrastructure yeah. in a location. Uh, this so, is also, you know, they can also learn the problem, African problem, and they may come up with a big solution. Well, I mean, it'd be interesting, like just the number, if people are buying a lot of uh, SIM cards and then going for unlimited data, 8,000 people with unlimited limited data in one location. That's going to be interesting for the Ethiopia Telecom network. Yeah. <laughs> sure, that's also, yeah, yeah. the opportunity. I, I find it amazing to think about. It's an amazing venture and it's so exciting that mm. um, you guys are here helping to facilitate that. Yeah. I, I really, I think, I hope it's going to be one of those moments, actually. Um, we were talking about Black in AI. I think that coming to Long Beach was another of those moments, but I hope it's going to be one of those moments which sort of opens people's eyes up in the community to the sort of things that are going on where they're happening and so forth. Uh, really uh, yeah, yeah exactly. We organized a week ago in Daba X2. We accommodated more than 100 people with really better facility than the SA yeah, yeah. in Walaita. Yeah. Uh, you did the Daba X in Walaita? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I did that and it was successful even. I think that that's what's so interesting. It's like the thing that really... Um, I react against is when someone tells me they have a single point solution for every problem some group of people face, like as if they've worked out what the real problem is. And what I really like about what's going on at the moment with Indaba X, DSA, ICLR, these are all different types of events um, sure. that are part of an ecosystem of events that you need to pull communities together and different people yeah. will benefit from different events. But the thing that is perhaps common to them all is that they are Africa-focused, in Africa, hosted by Africans yeah. on African problems. And if, I think if, if I were to try and propose what I have seen as a single point solution, 
is that, that we need more of that. You know, yeah. maybe it doesn't have to be all of it. Mm. We should have African researchers working on yeah. problems elsewhere and pro people elsewhere working on African problems. But, but increasing the amount of that that's happening just seems a very important goal. Sure, exactly. Even those attendees from Ethiopia in, in DSA, almost like more than 10 are from Indabaet. Yeah. That, that, that's the place where they heard about DSA. Yeah. And that's very interesting. And even yesterday we got grant for SM conference, which will be held in Ghana. Yeah. So I just posted many of the opportunities and yeah, they are really good competence. Yeah. In the malaria competition, one of the, 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 the guy in DSA is probably will be the champion till now his, his model's performance is much more than others. Yeah. So this is how we can create uh, motivation among students, our students. Among students. And what, what feels very important to me, certainly it was important to me as a student, is the people often inspired me most were people who were coming from a related ba a background I could relate to. Mm. So if I saw someone coming from someone else doing things, then I couldn't, you know, then they, it was wonderful, but I couldn't aspire to it myself. But if I saw someone who came from the same background as me achieving exactly. things, then I had no excuse. Yeah, that's, that's, we, we just give lots of thanks for Tamnit Gavru. Yeah, she yeah. did a lot. She motivated, she inspired us a lot. That's why uh, we, we, are, we are just considering her as a model for Ethiopian ML ecosystem. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we, we just want to contribute a lot for Africa since there are lots of really uh, young talents in Africa. If we collaborate each other and if we are really working for our problem, we can come up with better solution than somebody else who doesn't know our problem, right? Yeah, yeah. he doesn't even know that Wilaito exists or how to pronounce it. <laughs> yeah. No one in this room like that. <laughs> It's brilliant uh, to order us. That was really nice to hear from you, both on ICLR and uh, you know what it's like to take a language that is a minority language in a country that is already dominated by a separate minority language and some of the challenges in yeah. doing machine learning there. Thank you so much for being a guest on Talking Machines. Thank you. Tewodros Abebe. Well, that is it for us on this episode of Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. Tune in next episode.